0: A note to our listeners this episode contains discussions of suicide and sexual assault that some might find difficult. I don't know how closely you listen to the credits of this podcast every week, but if you listen all the way to the end, you'll hear me say that it's a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. Now, Maximum Fun, you probably know as the network that the show is on. It gets promoted a lot. We have the Max Fun Drive every year, established brand, Maximum Fun. So, what's Papa Chick? Well, see, that's my company. I don't work for Maximum Fun, I work with Maximum Fun. It's a co production. I also work with other organizations on podcast stuff. So, okay, who cares? You don't care. But you ask, what does that word mean? Papa Chick. Is it like, Father of the chicks? The papa chick? No, it's spelled different. P-O-P-U-T-C-H-I-K. It's a Russian word, and it's for something that doesn't really have an English word. So when you travel, you might meet someone in the seat next to you on a plane or a train or a bus And you get to know them. You get to talking. You get to know their life story and why they're traveling and what they think of the experiences that they've had. Their adventures and their misadventures. Their glorious moments. Their huge setbacks. You talk because you've got nothing else to do. You're just sitting there. And after a while, you become friends. And then that part of the trip is over. And then you go your separate ways. You learn from these people and you teach them, and their travel informs your travel, and you had this relationship with this person. And that person? That's your Papa Chick. A few years ago, I knew I'd be doing a mental health podcast with interviews, and I needed a name for the company. And I chose Papa Chick because I knew I would be regularly bringing Papa Chicks to my listeners, talking about their mental health journeys on the show that became this one. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. This week's Papa Chick is Emmy Neetfeld. She's the author of a memoir called Acceptance, which is soon out in paperback. Emmy writes about her childhood in Minneapolis and a mother who was a compulsive hoarder, so much so that their home became uninhabitable when Emmy was a teenager. Emmy was hospitalized in inpatient psychiatric facilities for extended periods of time. She was in the foster care system in a highly restrictive home. She experienced homelessness as a teenager. Emmy eventually found her way to the famed arts school Interlochen in Michigan and was accepted into Harvard University. Emmy writes about being sexually assaulted in the book, about a domineering much older boyfriend, and finally, about finding stability and a healthy relationship with her now-husband. I asked Emmy Neidfeld why she chose to call her memoir Acceptance.
1: I wrote this book over the course of either 7 or 12 years, depending on how you counted. And the title in my head was Always Acceptance. At the beginning, though, it was meant to be almost ironic. Because as a teenager, I was dealing with so many problems at home, with neglect, with my parents hoarding, and yet I was in therapy where they told me the key to happiness is just to accept your circumstances. Oh. And I mean, in some cases, that's great advice. And sure. then in other cases, like mine, I was like, no fucking way. Like, I have to get out of here if I want to survive.
0: Right, right. And then there's a lot about... uh about college acceptance letters and a lot of events that at least confront you with whether to accept them or not, I suppose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So over the last kind of decade, this title has has really grown with me. And, you know, and for a long time, I was thinking the only way that I can be a happy adult, given some of these things that have happened, is if I just accept them. Like I get to the fifth stage of grief I'm like, this happened, I'm at peace with it, and then I move on. And writing the book, that was like the challenge that I gave myself, like, how do I become this Zen person who's over everything traumatic that's ever happened to me? But that's not, that's actually not what the book title means in the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, you know, let's check in after we hear a bit more of the story and then see, see how the acceptance <laughs> is going. What was happening at home when you reached a point you could no longer live with your mother?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in Minneapolis. My family was evangelical Christian. And then when I was nine, one of my parents came out as trans and they had a bitter, horrible divorce that I, my mom ended up winning full custody. My other parent moved across the country, never to be seen again by me at least. And, you know, my mom really fell into hoarding and our house just devolved into squalor. And so we didn't have a place to shower. There were like waist high piles of trash with narrow paths going between all the rooms and you know, and my mom had taken me to therapy because she could see that I was miserable, but my mom couldn't realize that her own hoarding was a big part of why I was struggling. And so instead I received therapy that wasn't really helpful. I was given 12 different psychiatric medications over the course of two years, ranging from ADD meds to antipsychotics. And by the time that I was 14 and I left to go to the hospital, which is kind of where acceptance begins, I was just completely hopeless. I did not know how my life could ever be happy again or how life could even be worth living.
0: What did those meds do to you?
1: When I took Concerta for the first time, which is a stimulant ADD medication, I became so incredibly antsy. I ended up hitting a kid on the head with a French textbook, kind of in an anxiety attack. And I just, it was this experience like out of my body that I had never had before. And I thought that I was going crazy. After that, I was given Xanax to calm me down. And then based on this bad reaction to ADD meds, my doctor was like, oh, you must be depressed. And so that kind of started a cycle of side effects that threw me totally off balance. So it was kind of like one drug after another, kind of trying to correct what went wrong. But at the same time, I was being told, you know, this very simplified version of mental health and mental illness, where they were like, this is a, biochemical imbalance and, like, we'll fix it with these meds. And when the meds weren't working, I became really hopeless and even suicidal because I was like, you know, there's something wrong with me that I can't fix.
0: Mm. You were hospitalized. Was it at 14 you were hospitalized?
1: And 13.
0: And 13. What led to that?
1: I, right around my 13th birthday, I was in this medication spiral i was feeling really really down and began self-harming like scratching myself with safety pins and stuff like that and my mom's solution to the to every problem was to call our health insurance's nurse helpline and i remember we called her and we called her you know one this one nurse who embodies all the nurses on right. this hotline who were kind and thoughtful and she was like, you know, you should go to a shelter. It doesn't seem like your home is a good place for you. And I remember telling my mom this. And my mom was like, you know, that's that's fine. You can go there if you want to get molested. And there was really this threat that anywhere besides home was going to lead to violence and was going to be even worse. And mm-hmm. so instead, that really left the emergency room. And so that's where I ended up right after I turned 13, and once I got into the psych ward, I loved it.
0: Well, why did you love it?
1: Well, there was hot water. There were warm meals. It was like quiet and calm, and I could hear myself think. And it really made the chaos and just unsanitary conditions at my mom's house really stand out.
0: What were you admitted for to the psych ward?
1: The first time I was admitted for like self-harm behaviors and then I as soon as I got out I basically immediately went back and then by the third time I was feeling suicidal and then I actually like made an attempt when I was withdrawing off of one antidepressant and and then eventually I was hospitalized for an eating disorder. So it was kind of a range of a range of things that all were kind of stemming from the same problems and that all brought me to the same places.
0: And the problem being the problem at at home, the problem with your mother and and the the home that you had?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think also this this way of of thinking about it, right? Where I was being told by these adults that I had a that I had like a problem deep within me with like who I was, what my makeup was. That was something that, you know, drugs might improve, but that was just like fundamentally broken. And that that made me feel really, really hopeless.
0: A theme of the book, among the themes of the book is, is how powerless you were as a kid. You, like you need to make your own way from an early age. You need to take care of yourself, but you're at the mercy of people more powerful than you by dint of the fact that they're adults. Did it take writing the book to make you aware of that? that that was such a theme in your life?
1: I think I was always painfully aware of how powerless kids in America are, where we're told, you know, kind of no matter what we think is best for us, that our parents know better. And this was just so frustrating to me when I was younger. And when I would like beg doctors and therapists, like just come to my house, like talk to my mom, like find out what's wrong with her. But it did take writing this book to kind of help me start to shake the sense that I was going to get in trouble for criticizing some of the adults in my life. Like I still live Hmm. in fear that by writing about what happened to me, like I'm going to be punished.
0: Hmm. Like, why like what, what 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 do you think's going to happen like and i and i know that that's a a gut feeling that's not a considered you know yeah. logical thing but, but what do you connect that to
1: one of the things that happened after i was hospitalized several times is i was sent to a residential treatment facility which was this locked building for you know basically troubled teens and There I was, I was exposed to kind of a different view of mental health where it was like your actions as a teenager are the problem and you need to learn to take absolute responsibility for everything happening in your life. And if you complain or if you blame anybody else, you will face consequences like not being able to call your parents or not being able to go outside or socialize with other people. And from that point onward, I kind of received those those messages again and again that, um, that if you want help in America, you have to be endlessly positive. Like no matter what's happening, like if you complain, you're going to get in trouble. And this definitely was not, unique to my experience, but is something that people don't realize about what's happening for a lot of youth who are branded as like, problem children, that like, they can't even be honest about what's happening at home, because somebody's going to punish them for it.
0: So do you learn to speak in code then at that point? Do you learn to put on a performance as a plucky youngster who's going (laughs) to get through all this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was like, a huge part of my training growing up. You know, I wasn't really learning, like, how do I take better care of myself? How do I make changes that are going to help me feel better? Instead, I was learning, like, okay, you need to wash your hair. You need to, like, put on a cute outfit. You need to smile for the doctor or the, you know, whatever adult is going to help you and basically play this game in order to get out of your situation. And that's, unfortunately, really the only choice for so many people who are facing adversity in the United States.
0: Yeah. Like looking back now at the, the meds you were taking at the, the suicidality that you were experiencing, the institutionalization, how do you now understand your, what your mental health was at that age during, during this, during your teenage years? Yeah.
1: Well, I absolutely was depressed I'm not sure it's, you know, it's complicated because it's not necessarily a disorder when it's a realistic reflection of life, um, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> and,
0: when, when it's realism.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I've had I now have this hindsight because I requested thousands of pages of medical records and I read everything I could get my hands on from every doctor and every therapist. And I believe, you know, everybody had good intentions and was trying to do what would be helpful, but that it, it really was so quick between going into the therapist, receiving a diagnosis, and then going into a doctor's office and getting medication. And effective medication management is, is really hard to do. Like, it requires a lot more than like a one hour assessment of a child to get a diagnosis. And then like 15 minutes in the office to write a prescription. But unfortunately that was what happened for me. And I happened to be somebody whose body is really sensitive. And so I think that it basically a cycle began where I was taking, eventually I was taking these drugs like antipsychotics and a doctor would see it on my history, and then they were even less likely to trust me and trust my story about what kind of things were going on at home that really needed to be addressed alongside you know, whatever medication or therapy was happening.
0: As your teenage years go on, you, you become very uh, interested as sort of a mild way of talking about your interest in the Ivy League, in uh, getting into a great college, getting into an Ivy League college specifically, when did that fixation, I guess, develop and why do you think it was so strong from such an early age?
1: Part of my family's mythology was that my mom had always wanted to go to Stanford. And when she was a young girl, Stanford was the only really elite college that was co-ed and accepted women. And so I grew up hearing all these stories about how, you know, I almost got into Stanford, my mom would tell me, and like my life would be completely different if I had gotten in. And I loved school. I loved books. I loved reading. I loved getting out of the house to go hang out with teachers. But as this mental health crisis set in, I kind of lost hope that that could be my future. But then, At 14, I was sent to this eating disorder unit, and I was suddenly surrounded by people who were from a totally different economic class than I was, like these really pretty white girls from the suburb who were taking all these AP classes and playing field hockey. And there, the psychiatrist really took an interest in, like, where do you want to go to college? What do you want to be when you grow up? And we had this conversation that probably lasted five minutes. But it, it made me think over the months that followed, like, what if I could go to an Ivy League school? It felt totally unrealistic, but I was also, you know, confined to an institution where I had to ask to, go to the bathroom. So I was like, if I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to live, then I might as well try to do what I have dreamed about doing
0: it was interesting to me when i read about it because there's so much happening in your life that could have broken you or at least could have could have depressed you further you're you're in a foster care home and they kind of take away your livelihood and and you're you're trying to have a relationship with your your mother and with your other parent and it's going so so poorly but there needs to be this extraordinary confidence that that Harvard or Yale or somewhere like that might still lie ahead like how do you square that that you were so beaten down but still so had this optimism really
1: i credit my mom with some of that because she just had this totally irrational optimism her whole life like it wasn't it was never phrased as i got rejected from stanford it was always i almost got into stanford even though it's it's the same it's the same letter you get in the mail right right and also i grew up really religious and i believed in like a personal jesus christ who was there like watching me who wanted me to achieve my dreams who is going to make me into like a pop star or Christian comedian or whatever fit with like his plan, like capital H, capital P. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had this, this template where even when I lost my faith and in acceptance, I write about kind of chasing that idea of this personal God. I, I kind of kept that feeling in my heart and it was always kind of there there for me.
0: Yeah. Did you reach a point ever where, where you're going through some of these things and you think, well, it's it's time to give up on the Ivy League dream and maybe just try to go to Kalamazoo State or, <laughs> or community <laughs> college or something?
1: Yeah. Well, that that almost happened when I was 15 and I was in in foster care and I saw this opportunity to potentially get out of foster care by attending a small campus of the University of Minnesota super early. And that was my mom's alma mater. And I thought, you know, I just told myself, like, I'm gonna be happy with that. And, but at the, sa- you know, at the same time, for me, once I decided, like, I want to go, to get away to college, whether that was the University of Minnesota or the Ivy League, to me, the, the alternative was, was death. Like, I wrote all these letters where I was like, will I succeed or will I end my life? Mm. You know, and as an adult, I have a little more perspective to be like, those are not the only two options. And I wish I could tell my younger self to just like chill out a little bit about the future. But I I think I knew that getting into a better place emotionally really meant putting a big distance between myself and my family of origin just in order to to heal or stop getting hurt
0: more with Emmy Needfeld in just a moment what is up people of the world do you have an argument that you keep having with your friends and you just can't seem to settle it and you're sitting there arguing about whether it's star trek or star wars or you can't decide what is the best nut or can't agree on what is the best cheese stop doing that listen to we got this with mark and Hal, only on max fun your topics asked and answered objectively definitively for all time so don't worry everybody we We got got this. this we got this back with Emmy Niedfeld, author of Acceptance When did you come to understand the the trauma of the events that that you had experienced you know, you are unable to live with your mother you experience homelessness you spend years trying to figure out where you're going to sleep next uh, you are raped you described being raped in the book when did you come to understand that this was trauma, that these things stay with you, that these things are, are you know, stored in you?
1: I think it was a couple years after I graduated from college when really? my life was really. Yeah. Yeah. When my life was really kind of picture perfect, like I was engaged to be married to a classmate from Harvard. I was working at Google making six figures And, um, and yet I was deeply unsettled. I never wanted to be at home. Just like being in my own apartment, like freaked me out. Um, I always wanted to be out and about doing anything, doing something. And one night I was on the subway in New York city where I had moved and I, I got separated from Byron, my, my fiancee. And he had my phone, and I didn't have, like, a book with me or a piece of paper. And so I was going to be alone by myself with my thoughts for, like, five to ten minutes before I could make it home. And I basically had a panic attack. Like, I I didn't know how I could, like, just be alone with myself for ten minutes. And I was, like you know is this normal like is this how most people are moving through their lives
0: hm so until that point like all the way through your teenage years all the way through graduating from Harvard four <laughs> years at Harvard you had always kind of had a mentality of okay what comes next what else is going on like there you were you're scrambling
1: well i always funneled my my feelings into productivity Mm-hmm. And that was part of my superpower in in getting out of my home life and getting into the Ivy League. But then it also made it really, really hard to see that something was wrong. Because people like me are praised all the time for our responses, right? Like when we're talking to young people and telling them, like, be resilient, I'm like a poster child for that, just because of the way that I kind of naturally respond to hardship. But but there are really big downsides to that as well. And at times, I've really hurt myself with some of my impulses to like be productive, be the best, and handle my trauma in that way.
0: Hmm. When you're at Interlochen in the in the book, you, know, you go away to this sort of idyllic colony of, uh, of a school. And later at Harvard, you're surrounded by these people whose, as you say, whose circumstances were... Very different, whose paths, I guess, were at least on the surface much better paved. What did that dissonance of your background and theirs do to uh, your managing of, of all the trauma you had experienced?
1: I remember one of my first days at Harvard. It might have been movement day, actually, where I went to my room and I met these seven or eight other girls who were going to be my hallmates, and just seeing how, like, perfect and pristine they were. And it, like, Harvard actually has, you know, they have students from different economic backgrounds. A lot of people are on financial aid, but the dominant culture is very much set by, like, the wealthy private school crowd. And I, I remember one of my classmates, trying to get to know me better, like inviting me to her room. And I was just mortified because I was like, if she knew the truth about my past, she would never want to be friends with me. And that was when I decided I just have to, I have to bury everything that has happened. And I'm going to pretend like my life has been normal up to this point. And I really, I really stuck with that for like five or six years. Like I did not tell anybody about high school or my family.
0: You're back to the performance thing. It's like being, being in the hospital when you were young, like trying to figure out when to smile and what cute outfit to wear.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Even though my outfits weren't that cute at Harvard, I could have used a little less, a few (laughs) lessons about how to dress like a prep.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. So were you ashamed of your past?
1: I was really ashamed. I was really, really ashamed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad in hindsight because now, you know, now those people, they know my story and they don't seem to judge me for it. Like everybody has a past of some sort. As a teenager, it's a lot harder to see that. But I think also I had been, I had really been taught like by my mom, don't, don't talk about the hoarding. Don't let anybody inside. And I had experienced again and again just like being disbelieved, being treated like I was crazy. And especially after, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 17 and, you know, traveling by myself without a stable place to stay. And in the aftermath of the rape, my mentor was basically like what do you expect happens to girls who are by themselves. And it was such like it was such a humiliating experience that I felt like I felt like if I tell somebody anything about the last 5 years of my life, they're going to know like exactly what happened to me. Like every detail of this this assault.
0: Did, did shame over your past translate into shame over yourself about who you fundamentally were?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of disowned this person I had been, that I had always been. And I was like, I'm going to become a Harvard person now and I'm going to get new interests, new hobbies, new haircut, and I'm going to be this new version of myself. I still struggle with figuring out what is authentically me and what is this Ivy League persona that I learned to put on.
0: So who are you who are you really?
1: Uh, I don't know. I'm t- I work through it every single day, but yeah. it's so it's so deeply ingrained in me and I think where where people go to go to college shapes them a lot as a person. Um and so it's like I, I, I'm I, trying to get more in touch, though, with, with who I was as a teenager. And I think writing this book was really huge in recognizing the beauty and the strength and the ambition of my younger self, even though I was ashamed of her greasy hair, her lack of social skills, like her cavities. Um, it helped me see beyond that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it... I read it as a a hero. (laughs) Like this person who's confronted, I mean, there's like a Dickensian element to it. Like uh, you are plucky, you are getting through this, except maybe a little more eye rolling and swearing under your breath than the average Dickens character.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You say you've been writing this in some form for 12 years?
1: So I, as a high school senior, after I submitted my college applications where, you know, I was still in the thick of things and I was trying to explain it all to colleges in a thousand words and sell myself as this amazing overcomer. I I felt like that was so dehumanizing and impossible to do that. I wrote an essay that basically was the seed for acceptance. And then I really I really picked it back up shortly after graduating from Harvard back in 2015. And that was when I started really writing in earnest, you know, every day for then almost seven years until it finally came out.
0: Why was it so important that you write it down?
1: For the first couple of years, I honestly was trying to tell that story about like look at me look how much I grew from all of this I'm such an amazing incredible person who deserved to get into Harvard and now have this elite job I was trying to tell that that narrative and kind of prove to myself and to Harvard that I like deserved it and then as I was writing that just became increasingly impossible to to say that that was the whole story. And so I I was desperately trying to like make peace with what happened in one way or another. And I knew that I had so much work to do to figure out like what did this really mean? And why do I think about this every single day?
0: Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about your the difference between Your application to, I believe it was Yale and your application to Harvard and what was left in and what was left out.
1: I applied early to Yale. And at the time, my college counselor said, you know, I think honesty is the best policy. And so we are just going to write out, you're going to write out like everything that happened with your mental health, like when you were hospitalized, what diagnosis you got, And her logic was that that would show Yale how bad my circumstances were. Like, if you could see how it affected me mentally, then you would understand how bad it was. And then I was rejected. And a few different people called people that they knew. And basically the hypothesis that we had at the end was that I had raised too many red flags. It was too much information. And that I looked like a suicide risk if I were allowed on campus. And this was like a week before the regular application deadline. And so I went to my other applications and I was like, I'm going to eradicate mental illness from these. And so there was no hospitalizations, like no mental health struggles. You know, it was just like this appropriate amount of struggle followed by ultimate triumph.
0: Mm, And that was
1: what got you might the narrative yeah and that was what got me into harvard
0: huh do you, so the so it's discrimination <laughs> it's, uh, against mental illness yeah
1: i think and i think it's really complicated and hard like i ha- let me rephrase that i have a lot of empathy for college admissions officers and i think that they have a really really hard job And I also am very grateful that I had adults in my life who were able to give me this guidance about, like, here's what to include, here's what to leave out. And I'm grateful that I was able to leave out the mental health stuff. Like, I I write about it in acceptance, but it was only because of the way my transcripts were written that I was able to avoid disclosing, like, hey, I spent nine months in a locked facility as a freshman. And a lot of young people, they just do not have that opportunity. Like, they have to they have to tell colleges. And the people who are most likely to need to tell colleges are the people who have less privilege. Like, if you are a wealthy teenager in America, there's a very good chance that your school will cover for you, which I honestly, I think is great. I think, But I think it's what all young people deserve. And until that happens, I really want to raise awareness among parents and students and especially admissions officers and guidance counselors about, like, here's the reality of how mental illness is treated in college applications. And here's how you should proceed in order to secure your best future.
0: We'll be back with more from Emmy Needfeld right after the break. They can be anywhere, at your office, in your car, and they are wrong.
1: My mom says that the gray house didn't exist, but she's wrong. He just doesn't wrong. Someone in your life is wrong about
0: something. Something small, something weird, something vitally important. Only one person has the courage to tell them just how wrong they are. You know what you did was wrong, (laughs) but your daughter is a liar who eats garbage. (laughs) They call me Judge John Hodgman. Listen to me on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. If someone in your life is doing you wrong, don't just take it, take it to court. Submit your case at MaximumFun.org J-J-H-O. Back with author Emmy Neufeld. Something I've, I've talked about on this show before, and apologies to listeners who are sick of hearing about it, but uh, uh, when I when I wrote a memoir, I found th- there was so much that was sort of revealed just by the act of writing. So many connections I was able to make, like, oh, this weird thing happened when I was 15, and that explains why this other weird thing happened when I was 35. You know, like, I, I was able to kind of see the plot a lot clearer than than by just living it and thinking back and having memories. Did you have those surprise connections, those sort of novelistic plot arcs that snuck up on you?
1: Absolutely. I especially encountered this when I went into Fact Check, where I, I read every email that I sent as a teenager Oh my god! Like I went through over ten. 000. Yeah, if you want to torture yourself, <laughs> yeah. just read every email you sent as a teenager. Not,
0: that sounds like if you die and go to hell. <laughs> <laughs>
1: essentially, essentially. Yeah. And yeah, and there were there were so many times where I remembered the feeling, but I didn't remember why. Like I had totally forgotten the why. Like with this college application thing, I remembered clearly that I submitted these applications. And I felt extreme shame about them and was having nightmares. I like started abusing Adderall like again and just having all of these symptoms. And I didn't remember like what was so upsetting about it. And then when I read through these emails, I was like, oh, it's because I edited out this mental health stuff. And I felt like I was lying by omission. And so it's just wild, like the things that you can forget about your own life. And it's those stories really like they serve your narrative that you have like going through the world. But sometimes that narrative is not is not accurate.
0: Did going through all those emails and and did writing the book and, and going through all the fact checking do anything to alleviate the shame that you've been carrying?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um I like to joke that if writing is therapy, it's bad therapy. <laughs> and it's a very roundabout way to do things to write a memoir and do all these steps. But at the very least, it was like extremely powerful exposure therapy because I would open up my laptop, like read about a doctor calling me histrionic and dramatic. And I remember just snapping it shut and being like, okay, well, now I have to kill myself because I can't live with the fact that that's what they said about me. And then, you know, by the next day, I was annoyed, but I was like, I guess I could keep living. And then after a few months or years, you're like, yeah, that's what it said. Here's why. And it gave me the tools to kind of piece everything back together in a way that really made sense. Like, especially after being told by, by my mom and other adults, like, after hearing their version of the story for so long, it really gave me a chance to be like, okay, this is my version of the story. And other people will have totally different interpretations of what happened. And that's fine. That's their prerogative. But I get to have my version, too.
0: I'm going to use a pretty nebulous psychology term here that I'm not crazy about, but I'm going to use it anyway. Have you processed the trauma of your, your youth?
1: Can you tell me what you mean by that?
0: Have you come to a point of managing the meaning of what you went through and understanding the effect that it has on you today?
1: I definitely have gotten to a place where I am living what I believe is a full life. Like there were definitely a couple years where I was, I had severe PTSD and I was making so many decisions based on like managing these symptoms and wasn't sleeping through the night, like was over-exercising to cope. And I'm definitely through that. And I think that the stuff that happened will always affect me. And that part of being where I'm at is continually learning like how these events have shaped my present day responses, especially when it comes to, to being in relationship with other people, right? Like when it's really hard to trust or when I'm afraid of punishment, as we talked about before, but I think that's also okay. You know, I, I have seen so many messages that tell trauma survivors like, you know, success is being made stronger by what happened to you. And it's great when that works out that way. But I really don't think that that's realistic. And I only started to really get better when I decided, you know, I get to be as upset as I am. And if I feel permanently broken by this stuff, like, that's okay. And that was actually really the key to being able to kind of move beyond it.
0: In the book, you you write about a boyfriend that you had while you were at Harvard who was older than you, who was a, a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of any other way to put it. A, a bad A bad relationship, or at least a problematic relationship. Given everything that you had been through, in your younger days and and in that relationship, what did it take to build what seems to be a very strong and healthy relationship with your now husband?
1: I love that question. Um, when I was dating my ex, we really treated each other like we were computers. Like he had studied economics and at the time I was very interested in behavioral economics and there was so much like bargaining with each other where it's like you, you need to change in this way and in exchange, I'll change in that way. And that led to so many unhealthy dynamics, a lot of like abuse of power. And so when I ended up meeting Byron the summer before my senior year of college, I was like, I'm not going to treat him like a computer I'm going to treat him like a dolphin and I am just going to just only That's not what like I was
0: expecting you were going to say, <laughs> no, really? <laughs> you didn't How so? that?
1: Um, because I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on our feelings and I'm only going to give you positive reinforcement. And so for the first six months that we were dating, I never said one negative thing to him. And eventually he was like, knock it off, like stop manipulating me. But it really led to this, like culture of like if i have a problem with him and what he's doing it's kind of like i can manage my own emotions i can deal with it in a way that's like effective and also if he's not right for me i can't really change that like i can't ask him like go become a different person at that point we just have to break up and that was kind of the wisdom that i got from this super toxic relationship before that and and it helps that you know Byron is a very stable person with a secure attachment style and he was also when we met he was desperate to be in a relationship like he really wanted it and that helped me to to kind of trust him over the years as I put him through test after test always ready to like you know I was ready to break up with him if it if it went south and I feel just beyond fortunate that I do have such a happy relationship, which, like, regardless of most people's childhoods, like, how many people get to say that? Yeah. It's really, like, the biggest blessing in my life.
0: You write with a lot of detail and a lot of honesty and a really tough section about um, being raped when you were in Europe. What goes into deciding how you're going to approach writing about that? How detailed you're going to be? What, what kind of what kind of approach you're going to take what what goes into that yeah
1: i'm really glad you asked me that because um nobody nobody has and i think that there's a lot of writers who are very sensitive to not re-traumatizing readers who might be survivors or who might have gone through a similar experience and i definitely was aware of that, especially when it came to, like, eating disorder stuff, to just not putting in, like, unnecessary triggers that didn't really move the story forward. Um, But specifically when it came to, you know, rape, I, I did not want to write about it. I was at a point where I had, like, never told anybody the full story of what happened. And I had an earlier draft where I basically, like, you know, alluded to, like, You'd like said, like, you know, this thing happened, like cut to black. And I remember I gave it to a beta reader who was like a, I mean, he was one of my colleagues. He was like a 60 year old dad of a teenage girl. And I remember he, he zoomed in on that and he was like, I don't think it could happen like that. Like, I don't think somebody could really be assaulted in that way. And he just kept saying, like, you know, I don't understand. And then I went and, you know, I I was like, I wanted to jump off the roof, right? I was like, so embarrassed and like ashamed. And then I was kind of debriefing it with Byron. And he was, so Byron's my husband. And he was like, you know, I think that this guy was saying, I don't understand, because he wants to understand. And when he says, I don't know how it could happen like that. He literally means that he does not understand how it could happen like that. And at that point, I I was kind of, like, angry and emboldened. And I was like, I've carried the reader, like, so close to me for 300 pages. Like, what does it say if I'm suddenly, like, I'm not going to talk about this? And I felt like that would really kind of reinforce the shame and the stigma and the idea that, like, sexual assault is something that we can't talk about. And so that was my, that was my choice in kind of describing what happened um, in more detail than most books have. Yeah. And I've also found it really helpful for me in kind of making sense of my own experience to read about like very like specific things that have happened to other people. Because feeling like, oh, I'm the only person that this has ever happened to, like, it must be something about me, that's so lonely and that's so isolating. And literally just knowing, like, this one crazy detail happened to somebody else has just, like, put my mind at ease and really let me be like, okay, that's the thing that happened. And, like, I can move on. I can sleep through the night. And so I really hope that that it can do that for some other readers.
0: What is it like having that story out. Like somebody can go into a Barnes and Noble and read about (laughs) the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Um, what is it like having that story out in the world?
1: I've both gotten very used to it and it's kind of weird. Um, where I, it was such a shock, like talking to people who had read the book, but had never met me and being Mm -hmm. like, Oh my God, you read this thing that very recently I would like not tell my therapist. And it was super useful to just to to know firsthand that like, you know, you meet me, it actually doesn't matter like what preconceived notions you have about what type of a person I am because of this happening to me or like how broken I must be or anything like that. Like I'm just who I am and I literally don't have the bandwidth or time to be constantly thinking about like other people's reactions. So it helped me kind of like incorporate this. It's just like another thing that happened to me. Um, and at the same time, like I I do, I, I am like in in bed at night being like, wow, did we really have to include all of that? Like I was just waiting for my editor to like edit this the scene. And then she's like, No, I don't want to. She's like, it's good. And I'm, and I just like, I trust her so much. I didn't push back. And now I'm like, is my book banned in Florida? <laughs> like I got, a, I got like emails from librarians who were like, can you please tell me like in detail, like, does this book include sexual content? And I'm like, well, <laughs> there's sexual assault and like a few chaste kisses, but like, you know, yeah, we'll see what the, we'll see what the censors say.
0: Yeah. It might be a badge of honor being banned in Florida. I'm not sure.
1: But you don't know. They don't tell you. <laughs> they don't, they don't tell-, tell you. And it was, the book is coming out in China uh-huh. and it was censored in China. Oh. And I got the censors' edits and it was like, damn, these are really good. I was like, <laughs> I sent this to my editor and I'm like, could we do this for the paperback?
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice work, China. Yeah. <laughs> I, my, my book was, uh, was published in Slovakia, and I've gotten all these great emails from Slovakia, and I'm like, that translator must be so fucking good, because (laughs) like the the proportion of Slovakian responses to American responses, I'm like, that's not me. That's got to be the Slovakian doing something good there.
1: You should have the translator come on your show. I
0: really should. should I'd love that episode. (laughs) Figure out how he's so much better at being me than I am. I'm not sure. Couple questions about the present day. How's your mother?
1: Um, I'm not in touch with her. Okay. Um, I think through the grapevine, I hear you know she's she's doing doing her thing, doing what she wants to do, um, and I'm happy happy for her with that, and also happy that I don't have to be around to see it. Um, yeah.
0: And then, how are you taking care of yourself today?
1: I am Okay, so sorry, just <laughs> just a second. Um I don't know why this <laughs> I did all the other questions and this one's hard. Um but um I'm really focusing on the basics, on like working out not too much. But enough to help my mood, build my strength, Um, trying to focus on like sleep, like doing the crossword at night instead of watching Saturday Night Live. That's been a huge change that I made for the better. And eating, you know, eating less sugar, eating more protein, I, that stuff, it's all so basic. And obviously, that's not going to do the trick for everybody. But I've been startled by how much of a difference it's made for me when I've been able to like prioritize that just like physical health stuff. I feel like a totally different person. And I go to therapy. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Of course.
0: How's therapy going?
1: Oh, therapy is good. I was like, I went into this therapist and I was like, I don't want to be here for more than one year. And now we're like four and a half years in. (laughs) And I'm like, you're probably going to be my therapist for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> what did you what why did you think that it would it it could only take a year or like what what adjustment did you make to your understanding of therapy?
1: Yeah, well you know, I was burned as a teenager by some bad therapists and as an adult too, I really struggled to find the right person and had some just like I had some laughably bad first adult counselor. And so and then I went through exposure therapy, which was like a 14 week extraordinarily painful course of treatment for PTSD. And so after that, I was like, those were the longest 14 weeks of my life. Like, I can't do regular therapy for more than 52. (laughs) But then, you know, but then we were there and it was like things just they take as long as they take, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to have the the insurance and the financials to to afford that because it's a big commitment to be in therapy for a number of years but i i feel like i'm uncovering new stuff all the time and like finally doing that like personal growth that people hope for from therapy that was like that was just always like outside of the scope of my imagination
0: emmy needfeld thanks so much for being with us
1: thank you so so much for having me john
0: Emmy Needfeld's book, Acceptance, is available in paperback on August 1st. If people donate to our program, we can keep having a program. I like having a program. I like introducing you to weekly Papa Chicks. Uh, but to make that happen, people have to give. If you've already donated to the show, I really appreciate it. It helps make the show available to more people around the world where I think it is helping folks. If you haven't donated already, don't worry. It's easy to do. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. MaximumFun.org slash join. Find a level that works for you and choose Depression Mode from the list of shows. Be sure to hit subscribe, give us five stars, write rave reviews. All of that helps get the show out into the world where, it again, it can help people. We're about helping people. That's what we want to do. You can help yourself to some uh, some merchandise, some swag, some depression mode stuff at our merchandise store. That's at maxfunstore.com. You can uh, choose our show from all the Max Fun Shows or choose another show and see what they've got to offer as well. We've got all sorts of things. We've got mugs. We've got... Bucket hats, we've got sweatpants, because what is a depression mode without some good sweatpants? The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available 24-7 for free in the United States by calling 988. The Crisis Text Line, also free and always available, text HOME to 741-741. Our Instagram and Twitter are both at DepreshPod. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. A lot of good conversation happening over there. People helping each other out. Our newsletter is available on Substack. Just search for DepreshMode there. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at John Mo. Our electric mail address, DepreshMode at MaximumFun.org. Hi, Credits listeners. The original intro for this episode talked about how everyone is on a mental health journey Even the members of Journey. Even Steve Perry and his replacements, Steve Augeri and Ariel Pineda. It gives me no pride that I can name three Journey lead singers off the top of my head with no notes. Okay, it gives me a little pride. Depression Mode is made possible by your contributions. The show is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our production intern is Clara Flesher. And we get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building waves, building waves, building waves. No one knows the reason, maybe there's no reason, I just keep believing. No one knows the answer, maybe there's no answer, I just keep on dancing. Hi, this is Mike in Connecticut. I know it feels overwhelming, I know it's difficult. But I also know that when you're ready to talk, someone will be ready to listen. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now.
1: MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.